If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi everyone, I'm, well, it's obvious, I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes, and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family... From the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. This week we continue our look at the mutilator, a serial killer who Dad has been talking about on and off behind the scenes for many years. And as you'll know if you've listened to the past few episodes... The list of victims keeps climbing. This week, we're looking at the fourth murder. Now, this one, as you recall last week, there was a bit of a smell coming from a dry cleaners at number 71, Burwood Road in a suburb in Sydney called Concord. So, Dad, we're going to go from here. This is the fourth victim who was found, and this is where the case gets really, really odd. So, there was a terrible smell, and there was a body found, and I believe he was naked except for a pair of socks he was wearing. His clothes were nearby. And when the police found him, he was in a he was in a really rough state. You have had to identify people who have pretty much been reduced to what you would regard as soup. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah, either soup or jelly. Sure, yeah. Um, I love jelly. Okay. In fact, uh, aeroplane jelly. Right, right. You, you know the song? You still... Yeah, I know, but you still enjoy jelly after all the things you've been through. I I've gone off jelly a little bit because of the <laughs> because of the wobbly effect. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah. I'd like to paint a visceral picture. 
please do for please our do. listeners. Yeah, I came across this magnificent piece of, um, I guess you could well, it was a statement made by the fingerprint expert because the police commissioner of the day and mm. and the senior politicians in New South Wales. In 62, yeah. In 1962, we're copying a lot of flack. You know, this, this is clearly, clearly we're talking about a deranged serial killer. Yeah. And, of course, we all know what happens if you don't catch a serial killer. They keep going. They just keep on going. Yeah. And as we will discover, this particular, uh, the offender... Had a very very troubled background, complicated, and there was no stopping him. So, you know, the police commissioner wanted results, and the detective sergeant, um, his name was Sergeant Robinson. I, I say detective. I mean, they've been given a detective rank over the last few years, but back then they were not detectives. And I'm going to read from his statement that's something we've rarely done in the past and it's i read it this morning and just sure. just to to let the listeners know i'm talking to you paul from notting hill in in london yes you are which is exciting awfully quiet so i mean when i read this it just brought back so many memories because it's so well written so here we go. With the aid of the morgue attendant, I pulled back the polythene sheet that housed the shapeless mass of human remains. The body was in an advanced state of decomposition, yep. black in colour, putrid, seeping and riddled with maggots. Now I've been, I've made, I'm, I have been, I'm just, when I'm reading this, I'm yep. having flashbacks. This sounds. Uh, this language sounds quite evocative. Is that, or is that quite normal for a description normal. of a crime scene? No, it's normal. Okay. No, this is just you. You are stating the facts. Uh-huh. The stench that emanated from the corpse was overpowering, and it was impossible to obtain fingerprints in the usual manner. Mm-hmm. I found the left arm, which had very little skin or flesh adhering to the fingers. I removed the fingers. Now, this is a kind of a bit of a weird thing because listeners who have been paying attention over the years will know that what this fingerprint guy did was it's something that I've always said is not the thing to do so what he did because we actually had an episode Paul where there was a body out west and the the over diligent highway patrol officer tried to save on postage so he mailed them and but he didn't identify which fingers were which correct okay yeah, I mean, what I used to do, I used to just yeah. cut the the hands off at the wrist. I still can't. Sorry, listeners. I just want to look. I know we talk a lot about a lot of dark stuff, but it's it's occasionally that the reality of this hits me in the face. That my dad, your friend and mine, John Verhoeven, has cut people's hands off. Well, I mean, that's not a. Yeah. Well, I mean, someone, someone has to. Do, you're not going to sort of. You're not going to go out onto the main road outside. You know the morgue and go. Oh look, can you give me a hand? Excuse the pun. I get the, very um, good. I get that someone has to do it. I'm just, it's, hmm. it's a lot, Dad. and it has to be done with. Look, it's a, sh- it's a crap job, mm-hmm. probably one of the worst. Okay, so 
I found the left arm, which had very little skin or flesh adhering to the fingers. Um, this is, again, I say this is odd. I removed the fingers mm-hmm. with the aid of a bolt cutter. Each finger was severed separately and placed in a small envelope. And according to the digits so removed, a label was then affixed for easy references. This is problematic, as will be revealed. On finding the right arm, I observed the skin on the right thumb, index and middle fingers were almost completely eaten away by maggots, although loose fragments of skin were hanging from these digits. I carefully removed these skin fragments and placed them also in labelled envelopes before initially removing the actual fingers in the manner as previously stated. So, listeners, that's kind of working at the coalface. Let's just... Yeah, I I think it's worth just dialing back a little bit and going the statement that's being made here by this police officer uh, describing the level of putrefaction around this body. This body was found... At this laundromat, yes, mm. it was found uh, underneath. And the, underneath, underneath the laundromat, they actually had to, I believe, break a hole through the wall to, to so get, they could get a stretcher yeah. in. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and, I mean, think about have... the, well, think Go about on. the government contractors. Those guys mm. in white coats that you know they rock up in a van. Yeah, they've got their little stretcher. Um, I'm not sure about the early 1960s, but when I was in the New mm. South Wales Police Force, again, we may, we may all recall that. The it was the local funeral directors that tended, and I like to call it a reverse tender, where it's a race to the bottom. And and some of them told me at the morgue in Glebe in the eighties that they were paying, they were sort of charging the New South Wales Police Force as little as one dollar vultures to, to get yeah. the to get the body, with yeah. the with the obvious hope of getting the funeral. But this so. body's been this body's been got. While that's happening, the police are searching the shop itself and they right. find... And you've you've encountered stuff like this before. So they head to the kitchen uh, and around the sink there's blood everywhere. Yes. There's blood um, on a mattress upstairs where yep. I assume someone was staying. Yes. Blood it's- stains all over the floor. It's something very bad has happened here. But while they're making those inquiries, Dad, as you know, they find out that um, somebody took a lease of the shop one month prior to this incident. And his name was Alan Edward Brennan. Remember that name, listeners. That's very important. And he, the, the local residents were excited that this, um, it was an ongoing business. Sure. So he bought an on, ongoing uh, you know, laundry business. So and if you've got to, if you take your stuff to the laundromat, that means that there's a continuation of great. that business where you take yeah. your stuff. And, great. And, okay. And all the residents, uh, the neighbors, they were all happy. They finally yeah. had a, a dry cleaner that was reopening and then within mm-hmm. days of it, it reopening uh there was a sign on the front that just said uh basically i'm not well i'm going away to hospital and it'll reopen in four weeks okay. which is really interesting weird so paul basically the police had all this information mm-hmm. uh and this is bloody interesting and that is that is it- Oh, is this the detective? The no, this is yeah, about is this... the um the fact that they then discovered who who had the lease on the the shop, but they found out that this person had gone to a local hospital mm-hmm. with a cut on his hand. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't 
one of the previous victims' teeth was found. Could that have been from a bite mark? Was that is that what people are thinking here when they're investigating? Yes. Yeah. Well, he had very, very unusual teeth. Yeah. And that's what they used with the identikit photo. But he said when he went to the hospital, when Brennan went to the hospital, he said that he cut his hand while he was making food. So he was kind of making sandwiches and he used a carving knife and he cut his hand. That was his excuse. But instantly alarm bells went off for me, Dad, because as everybody recalls, in that alleyway, um, that guy who was still alive when they found him, if you recall, he'd actually Mm. bitten the perpetrator. So, okay. And the hospital was the Western Suburbs Hospital. And the morning he was treated was the morning of the 4th of November, 1962. He required stitches. I think there was an artery that was severed. Uh, And that could conceivably explain the blood around the apartment. Yeah, blood blood was spurting. He cut through an artery. um, So the police have got a body seriously decomposed. Mm -hmm. Um, I read the, the, the coroner's report. And yeah. this this body was 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 rat shit, pretty well un- unidentifiable. They did get some really really tiny fragments, but it's very difficult to identify fragments. Um, it can be done with yep. points of identification, but you need you need a suspect, and it makes it complicated because you don't know what finger you're looking at. Mm. So. Um, but there is something perversely dark about the idea that the one of the victims, uh, one of his last victims, actually gave him the injury that potentially led him to bleed out in his own apartment and become the fourth victim in this in this crime. Right? That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Um, but the police, I mean, they couldn't identify the the body underneath the shop. They had the blood, but then. I mean, they would have. That was a red herring, the blood, because you know, to to a police officer, to a crime scene investigator going into a house, for example, and seeing blood everywhere, and yeah. no no body initially. Clearly, well, there are one or two things, um, you know, it's either foul play or an accident. But when they got this information about the hospital, that tied in directly to the man who the lease was under, that would have shifted their their sort of process in a in a in a sort of in a bad way. It sort of sort of took them off off the game. Uh, because then they started to think, well maybe it is the guy, this person. And eventually the coroner um, issued a certificate and this person was buried. But they knew, well, they thought they knew, because yeah. he had a history. This, this, this supposed, the, the wrong person, the person. This Brennan, think, Brennan, yeah. but, and the guy mm. they're burying, that they think's Brennan, and he used to work for the for the post office, and they had this special fund at the post office, and this fund was designed that if anything untoward happened to you and your family couldn't pay for a funeral, they'd dip in, and what, and that's what happened. You know, employees of Brennan that he had worked with over the years, they all chipped in and paid for the funeral. This is really, really bizarre. It's so bizarre because he's buried and, Paul, what happens next is an employee yeah. 
of the post office, the sorting oh. place at Redfern. Mm-hmm. After walking. the after the funeral, right? After the funeral. Funeral's done. Yep, funeral's done. A few months later, he's just walking police down the are street. Like, the, the police are like, we got the guy. We got yep. him. He's dead. He's buried. Yep, poetic. Yep. Fait accompli. Right. And yep. all of a sudden, one mm-hmm. day, an employee, a guy who'd worked with Brennan, walking down the street, and who does he see? He sees Brennan. He sees Brennan. <laughs> I'm not laughing because this is a funny case. It's just so weird that, I mean, okay, so he sees the guy who's meant to be dead, but does he approach him? Does yes. he go up and say, hey? yeah. oh my God. He shouts out, right. calls him out by name, and this person is hurriedly walking away, head down, Yeah, clearly does not want to engage. Never do that. You've got to turn and go, yes, you've got to lean in, right? We need to know at this juncture that Brennan had been, as probably most people in in New South Wales, if not Australia, had been following this case. So imagine, you know, you, you're you're more than a, clearly you're very aware of the case. All of a sudden, someone spots you. The person approaches Brennan and says. Do you want to come to the pub? Let's, you know, let's talk. Like you, you, let's talk about the fact that, let's go get a drink and talk about the fact that you're meant to be dead. You were buried, dude, right? <laughs> it's, it's crazy, just, okay. It's remarkable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now this person, Brennan, he yeah. goes back to work mm-hmm. um, and he tells his colleagues and they all sort of think, hmm. And then the guy that actually saw or, or who had the encounter with Brennan, he, and I, I kind of understand this, Paul, he, you know, as time goes by, he started to doubt the veracity of his own encounter. And he really began to think, you know what? Maybe. Maybe I didn't see him. him. Maybe it was, Maybe was someone else. Yeah. It was someone else. So, um, yeah, Brennan, he just, um, he just, he just vanished. And um, this this employee, he um, he basically just for, forgot about the whole incident. Um, but meanwhile, back at the Central Fingerprint Bureau, yeah. it became evident that what had happened was they found lots of fingerprints back at the um, at the dry cleaners mm-hmm. uh, above like in, in the private residence. In the, there were three rooms upstairs. So not in the kind of business area where no. it would be plausible to have different... Correct. Okay. And there was blood. There was blood on mattress. I mean, it was... You know, there was blood, but the police are thinking, look, you know, it, it all kind of ties in. And it's just... I mean, you, you wonder how many times this has happened in history. It, it must have happened quite a few times. Probably less and less now, but go go back in time. You know? Yeah. It's, it's a genuine, it's kind of where you, things come together and you look at the overall picture, the evidence and think on the balance of probabilities, it is this person. Then some months later, he's seen by a colleague. Um, but what happens, Paul? They did a fairly thorough investigation of the clothing, you recall, the clothing that was found next to the body yes. downstairs. Yes. Now, there was a shirt 
This is really, really good slash bad police work. At the time, they looked at the shirt. It had, it had stabbed. They didn't know. It's just unbelievable. They, upon further examination of this shirt, they sort of began to realise that it actually had lots of cuts. Okay, numerous cuts, which would then lead one to think, perhaps in hindsight, that maybe this person wearing the shirt had been stabbed. And if you've been stabbed 40 times, on the balance of probabilities, it's unlikely that you stabbed yourself. That's a fair comment. Yes, very much so. So they discover a, a couple of numbers on the inside of this particular shirt. This is really exciting. To, to me, this is the, the stuff of movies. Yeah. And they, they had lots and lots of people look at these numbers and at first they thought it was two digits, then a couple of other people looked at it and thought it was maybe three digits, and then some clever person, after extensive um, photography and, and sort of putting different filters on, remember it's back in the early 60s, Yeah. and they figured out that it was actually four digits, and they're trying to, they're pondering over these four digits, and then some amazing person says, you know what? They use four digits on prison outfits. Yes. How good is that? And really they, good detective it's work. It's great detective work. But you know what? It's great detective work, listeners, but we have a body that's that with a tombstone with someone's name on it, the name of Brennan. Yep. He's six feet under. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. And then all of a sudden, and golly, I'm getting excited now. <laughs> I am excited, Paul, because it's really important because it's fingerprint story yeah. kind of. This it's is, right up your alley. And this is right so up. rare. It's very rare that um, the stories it's, we investigate on the Shadow Files are. I know. Yeah. It's so exciting what I'm about to say. So they track this number to Long yep. Bay Prison and they track it to a person, a real person who'd done time at the bay, who'd got out. That's the shirt that was found next to the body underneath the dry cleaners. This is the shirt of a ex-prisoner, correct? Ex-prisoner. Someone who had actually gotten out of... Okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. And then they go back to the fingerprint evidence. Mm-hmm. And for those fingerprint people out there, I know you're about to... I can sense that what I'm about to say is pretty bloody exciting. Again, it shows you know, kind of what not to do. Again, I go back to the, the, the point of don't cut the fingers off individually. I find that just unbelievable. But Good then, advice generally, I think. Yeah, but then what they realised upon further identification of the fingers was that the thumb and pointer finger had fused together because you've got maggots and decomposition and rot and putrefaction taking place mm. underneath mm. the building. And the those two, the thumb and forefinger, they began to basically meld together. That, so the, that's... Uh. No, it's so fascinating because what they were doing when they were taking fragments of epidermis off what they thought was the thumb, it was in fact the part of skin from the the index finger which had basically transferred to the other well it, they they it, it's kind of looked like one um one finger but it it sort of it, it was it was an amalgam of uh-huh. two different sets of prints but what they now could do mm-hmm. because they had a name and they went to this person's record and they identified the skin fragments as those belonging to the ex-prisoner. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they went back upstairs and they started to to look around and then it became fairly evident that... From the prints, I'm guessing, from the fingerprints? They actually couldn't, they couldn't dust any latent fingerprints huh, from, okay. from the premises. But you don't need to. Because you've got the prints, partial prints, with enough points of identification, in New South Wales it being 12 points of identification, to then say, we've made a mistake. Um, and it would have been, and it would, it would have been some police officers, because it went right to the commissioner. And that would have been a, a very awkward and you know, uncomfortable uh, situation to be in, because someone has to you know, sort of bear the brunt of, of the blame. Because it's 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 a it's a bit of a stuff up. Um, I, although we are looking at this case, uh, you know, with hindsight, which is privileged and perhaps you know somewhat not pompous, but yeah, that's that's what. No, happens. it is. It is easy to easy. You know, you know, yeah. we weren't dealing with this 
no. you know, terrible set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, this is again bloody incredible. Yeah, down in Melbourne, working at the uh, at the railways, is an ex police cadet, mm-hmm. and he thinks that an employee, a recent employee of the railways, because this guy had a really unusual head, the suspect. It's kind of a triangular shape with... It's just very You make him sound weird. like a Dick Tracy villain at this point. Well, you know, it's, he sounds... he, it's, it's, a, it's almost a caricature. Mm. And when the police with their identikit sort of, you know, their identikit artist went to the Redfern Mail Exchange, because they then began to take this whole thing quite seriously because this you know the, some of the friends that were told by the guy that had bumped into Brennan in the street mm-hmm. they sat on the information for a few weeks and then they thought hang on a sec and they got in touch with the police the police come to them and they sit down and they do they create this identical image and i've seen the two images one's with the mouth closed and then they said to the police uh, artist, look, he's more aggressive. Like, he can really turn. And he sort of bears these, these teeth with massive gaps. So they did a second picture. So in the identical one that went out to the, to the media, internationally, might I add, there were two yeah. pictures, one closed mouth, one open mouth. And he looks like a fucking vampire, I reckon. And this police, ex-sort of trainee police officer in... in Melbourne thinks that he's actually working with this guy. He gets in touch with the Melbourne police and they come around to the place of work and this this guy, well, we know his name, don't we? Brennan. Yeah. He's sitting yeah. down, very calm, two very senior Melbourne police detectives, like hardcore, bloody hell. And they take him into a room and they start to to chat with him. And he says to them, that's not possible. I've only been here for three weeks. I arrived by ship. From the UK, right? From the UK. Sorry, from the... Yeah. Yeah. And he said, um, you know, my... And he gives them... Look, he's... Things are going fairly well, but these are seasoned, hardcore uh, detectives. And what they do is they keep sort of asking the same question, but in slightly different ways. And they start to sort of you know, prick a few holes in his story. And they, they said things like, okay, so you're, you're on a ship. You're going from England to Sydney. That's going to take, because I've done that trip, it takes four weeks. Can anyone on board vouch for you? And he said, no, I kept to myself. Um, you know, I don't have any friends. But whilst he's sort of saying or listen, the police are sort of talking to him, it's not it's not a formal interrogation. They're just questioning him. He hasn't been arrested. He hasn't been charged. He's not even at the police station. This is happening at the the railway sort of offices. And then he begins to falter. And and then he tells them. And they're sitting there and he's telling them that he murdered stabbed multiple times this person in his in his um you know laundry shop yep and the police are thinking this is this is good and what we need to remember listeners is that 
as far as the police are concerned, this person is a, is a primary suspect and he's just made admissions to the last murder. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, do you know what he says to the police, Paul? He says, I'm the mutilator. I am the mutilator. Yeah. Words coined by the media. Yeah. He has so been, he's been following the story, right? He, he has been following this story. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the burning question for everyone in this whole saga, the burning question is why? And I mentioned in the beginning that he had a fairly troubled past again, past we don't we don't make excuses but it needs to be looked into and he he's very consistent with a particular story that he was in the military in England in the 1940s and he says and he stuck by this story and he'd been interviewed by subsequently interviewed by psychiatrists of course and he said that he was in a shower cubicle and um, a person more senior than him came into the cubicle and raped him whilst he was standing up. And we already we already talked about that back in the first episode, I believe. Oh, did we? Well, yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah. um, but very important uh, yeah. because, and he had a very very troubled, very troubled uh, childhood. As listeners know, yeah, he's, and he's, he's yeah terribly dysfunctional relationship with his father. Mm-hmm. Not uncommon, and he was, he was, he was bullied, mm-hmm. horrendously bullied, and a sort of a sad part of this story that I find slightly poignant, and don't crucify me, listeners, for this. But he he did have one virtue that they talk about, and he was an accomplished pianist, and I just find it really sad to think that, you know, through circumstances he. He ended up this this crazed killer. But, you know, I've read a lot of reports about his mental state and, you know, it sounds to me, and I'm no psychiatrist, but to me, he suffered from schizophrenia because... Yeah, he had... Yeah. He, had, he just continually heard voices, and I know some people are going to roll their eyes back, but, you know, it's... Um, I think to be cursed with with some type of you know mental mental illness, but he did some incredibly weird things. He was working on a construction site and he poured concrete over the foreman. Really? Yes. So he was kind of inventive. Um, he had a very very bad temper, and when two very senior police officers flew from Sydney to Melbourne to extradite him back to Sydney, the stories because they go through every single crime and how and what his MO was. Now, his MO was to carry in, a, in sort of a pack two or three bottles of beer. He would always buy a brand new knife for each crime and he spent the equivalent of $50 in today's money, which is not... So he didn't go and just grab a shitty old knife. And mm. they always had a sheath. They were always... They were, they were expensive knives. He always had a raincoat. The raincoat is fascinating and I guess at this juncture, one can then flip one's thoughts about his mental state and go, hang on a sec, this is a hardcore, very considerate, very clever murderer. The raincoat was to prevent any of the blood 
splashing on his on his own clothing. Because what he'd do is he'd so he had the beer, he had the the knife, he had and this is really interesting listeners, think about well for those of you that can remember this, when you went to a fish and chip shop, what did the proprietor wrap the fish and chips in, Paul? Newspaper. Always newspaper. But they'd lay a yep. sheet of white paper over mm. the the newspaper so that the ink didn't sort of tattoo your fish and chips. Yeah. Clever. The newspaper was for wrapping the genitalia in. So he'd get the knife, he'd get the the, the appendages that he'd removed, and he'd roll it up into a neat, a neat bundle. And when he was in Sydney committing these crimes, do you know, apart from the, the first one, when they found his, um, you know, the the genitals close by but in the harbour. But, Paul, do you know ritualistically where he went every single time to dispose no, of everything? He walked no, into the middle of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and he would throw the package into the harbour. I find that really interesting. It's going to affect my mental state every time I drive over the bridge now. I have dived down there and... It's a raging current. It's it's and there are lots of sharks down there. There are there've been shark attacks, you know, close by. And to show you how thorough the police were back in the sixties, they had police divers go out into the middle of the of the harbour and they they dived. And it's deep, believe you me. Looking for the package, which they never found. So to speak. So to speak, but he he developed such a frenzy. He actually went to New Zealand, as he made in later admissions, and he met someone, and he was strangling the person. And halfway, just during the process, when he was about to sort of take the last breath out of his victim, he had mm. this voice come to him and say, "Don't do it." And all of a sudden, the, the desire and the urge to kill passed from him and he let the guy go. Oh, that's bizarre. Unbelievable. And he was up in Queensland and, he, and he'd worked with this Russian ex-person, ex like an ex-employee colleague that he didn't like and he, he, he wanted to kill him. And look, the thing is, listeners, that the very first time that he killed that person and they found... In case number one, they found him that rainy night underneath the pavilion. He says during the interviews that it was so easy to kill that person. He said he was surprised. It, it took him by surprise the ease in which his first victim passed. And that precipitated the, the excitement, the desire, and the ease. Of course, some of his victims... We, we go back to victim four, the guy that was in the shop. Uh, picture the murder scene. He'd gone by cab into the city to lure someone back. And he, he saw this person swaying. This is victim four. He approached him and he enticed him with alcohol. But this time he actually took him back to his own house, the shop. He took him upstairs. The guy passed out. He says in the record of interview that he was contemplating 
this whole sort of scenario of what he was going to do for around about one hour. And then he goes into the room and he sees this person sleeping. And he is leaning above him and he raises his knife in the air. And as the knife comes down, you know, this is all sort of sort of being gleaned from, from evidence and also st- statements from the actual offender, is that according to the offender, the victim who was incredibly intoxicated, all of a sudden in a microsecond woke up startled and was 100% sober as the knife came down. But he fought. And the offender actually, as he was driving the knife down to this sort of semi-conscious victim who is sort of lying on a, on a, on a bed, the knife being thrust down actually went through the murderer's own hand. And it went right through his hand and into the body of the victim. And as he drove or pulled the knife back out of the victim's body and his own hand, he'd severed this major artery, but he was completely unaware of it. And to prove that he was unaware and there's blood fucking flying everywhere is that he then goes to bed with a severed artery. And it's weird, listeners, because... It could have been a different scenario. It could have been a scenario where eventually both bodies had decomposed. Police force entry, go upstairs and find two victims. One with stab wounds to the hand because he's bled out. But that yeah. didn't happen. And he woke. He wakes in the morning. That's when he goes to the hospital. Then he comes back. Then he drags the body and puts it under underneath. It's... It's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary story, Paul. If you look at his victims, uh, five victims in total, yeah? Mm. So Amos Hurst was the first victim, and that was uh, in May of 61, and that was a 55-year-old man. Alfred Greenfield, uh, that was June 61, May, June, the next month. Uh, that was, uh, his body was found in the domain. Moore Park, victim three, was found. That was William Cobbin. Victim four was Frank McLean. That was in Darlinghurst. Um, that was last week, obviously. That was, well, it didn't happen last week. We talked about it last week. That was March 62. And then the final victim was found, age 42, James Hackett, um, June 1962. And that's the five victims of the mutilator. And he actually died in prison, uh, age 90, I believe. Mm. So he ended up in Long Bay, mm. uh, ended up, sorry, back in Long Bay, hmm. and then he was transferred to a, an asylum, and yeah, he died age 90. Wow. It's and it was the first recorded intense. case in criminal history in terms of the mutilation and removal of genitals. It's a, it's a truly remarkable case, and to any um, you know, police officer or emergency service person or even a, an innocent sort of person hmm. that would come across a crime like this, it would be... Unbelievable. And when I was a, uh, a young police officer, yeah. I got to see the actual crime scene photographs. And I'm sitting here in Notting Hill looking at a beautiful, peaceful, seated Buddha. And I can see in great detail the, the images of the, of, you know, the aftermath of this horrendous <laughs> crime. I don't know. I mean, listeners, you know better than anyone, um, apart from Dad and myself, what kind of stuff Dad has lived through. I don't know how 
emergency services workers clear this stuff from their like this psychic trauma from their heads but i think talking about it really does help so i'm I'm really glad that this show has provided an outlet for dad to purge some of this stuff uh well that that brings to a close our extensive multi-week look at the mutilator if you've not listened to the whole thing go back and listen it's i've really enjoyed this one it's been terrifying and upsetting but we'll be back at the end of the week with an episode of Loose Ends and then we'll keep going and going and going and going. Dad, I hope you enjoy Notting Hill and everybody else, I hope you enjoy wherever you are across the world. Thank you so much for listening uh, and continuing to listen. It means the world to us. In the meantime, have a great week and we will see you soon for more Loose Units. Bye, everyone. Cheerio.